0: Man, good morning. We're glad everybody is here. Um, man, it's crazy. Like I'm not a I'm not a numbers guy. Um, hey, Andrew, pull me down just a bit. I'm on number eleven. Pull that slider down. It's just there. We go. I'm not really a numbers guy, like, we, we as a church, like, I, I don't know, I think, I think there's some baggage that I still fight about, you know, just to be honest about what church should look like, what it is, that it's, you know, it's, it's not a structure, it's not a building, it's not a steeple, and it's not about, like, how many we gather, but it's about why we gather, and so I don't count a lot, you know, because it's just, I don't know, I just kind of rebel against that, but one number that does, like, make me super happy is, like, we had community groups for our second week this past week, and we had 66 people in community groups which that's a big number because right now there's a lot of people out of town today. So that's probably more people in community groups this past week than we, about more than we have here today. And so that, man, that's a big deal. You know, especially considering that's like our entryway into discipleship and how we replicate Jesus in one another. And so, man, that's that's awesome. So if you guys were able to make it to community groups this week, that's great. If you didn't get to make it, you you still have time. We're going to keep going until we're told that we can't. And, you know, hopefully that won't happen again. But either way, we're going to keep going. So if you need a community group, hop on originsgreenville.org. You know, find the About Us thing, community groups, find one, maybe shoot the people a message, say, hey, can I come? They'll say, sure, you can. And uh, we would love to see you there. Uh, We are back in Mark. This is week four, and we're finally going to make it to chapter two. Um, And that's okay. Like I said, we're going to slow roll through this, and we're going to take as long as we need. Um, Man, I'll be honest, a lot of pastors love to plot out, and they say, we're going to spend 16 weeks in this particular place. If you ask me how many weeks it's going to take right now, I'll tell you, I have no idea. Um, it could be uh, until we find a new space, and so that's, that's okay. And if you missed it last week, we did find out that we are losing the Old Cigar Warehouse. Um, that was kind of a shock to us, but at the same time, super exciting as well, because we feel like if, if God is moving us from here, He's moving us somewhere else for a, for a purpose. We will still be in downtown for downtown, uh, but we just don't know exactly where that's going to be yet. So uh, continue to pray with us about that, uh, that God would place us exactly where He wants us, and um, man, that people would come to know Jesus as a result. That's the goal. Uh, so, if you have your Bibles, open to mark chapter two, and and I'll go ahead and tell you that this is a uh, man, I, I love the book of Mark, like it's it's probably probably one of the first places that I take people, especially if they are new believers, but also as seasoned believers, people that have been following Jesus, like it's important for us to revisit these these stories and these things that Jesus did. Like we talked about Mark is going to be like your Michael Bay of the Gospels. A lot of action happens in the book of Mark um, based upon his literary style and to be honest, like his lack of finesse with the Greek language. Sometimes it's just going to be incredibly plain and applicable to us, which is good. And so today we're going to look at, at one of these stories that if you've grown up in the church, you probably heard this one in Sunday school. Um, you know, you probably heard you know, the flannel lithograph with this story, and it's one of those, and it's super good. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read it, um, and we're going to look at, at what God has for us here today as we look at Jesus here healing the paralytic. So let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for Jesus, uh, that through Jesus we can know you, we can be known by you, and we can let others know who you are as well. Uh, God, thank you for the promise that no matter where we go, if we are taking your name, you will be with us. Uh, Today, God, I pray that we can rest and sit well uh, with Scripture and learn from it, be changed by it, and that your Holy Spirit would work through it. Uh, Thank you for gathering us together, uh, allowing us to eat and share stories of the week and have coffee, and most importantly, just tell you that you're worthy, uh, worthy of our time, worthy of our lives, um, God, worthy of the mission that you place us on. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to read uh, through verse 12, and then we'll, we'll start back from the top. So it says, And when he had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which lay the paralytic, On which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, or child, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned with themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Man, such an amazing story. And I, and I fear, you know, sometimes if we've been in the church so long that we hear these stories, we're like, hey, yeah, yeah, I know what happened. I know what happened. But I, I want to retell it so that we understand exactly what's going on. Like, you know, if we take the whole scope of what's happened in the book of Mark so far, like Jesus comes on the scene as an adult guy and he just he says, hey, repent and believe, the kingdom of God is at hand. Previous to that, several different sources from Man, from Satan himself to prophets had attested that this Jesus is something other than, something completely different like the Messiah that's promised. So many sources saying, yes, this is the one that we've been waiting for. And then he begins to do things. Like he goes into a, a place and uh, he starts to teach, but then he's in a synagogue and, or a temple and somebody comes in with demons. And they're more surprised by the authority in which Jesus teaches than the fact that there was a demon-possessed man in their presence. And Jesus is like, you know, you demon, you be quiet and you go, you just leave. Go. And he did. And so people were like, this is amazing. We've never seen anybody teach like this. You know, he's teaching like he actually owns the words. And he did. And they said he has great authority. And then after that, he began to heal. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. There's a good chance that he's back at Peter's mother-in-law's, Peter, Peter's mother-in-law's house here. We don't know for sure, and it's, it's kind of unimportant, but he's at a house. And, so, and then we see that he came for two reasons. According to the text last week that we looked at, he came to teach the truth, and he came to heal and restore and they were interconnected. Like, we had to be taught in order to be restored. You had to be healed in order to be taught. You know, those kind of things. They're inseparable. And so the whole time, like, he's attesting to this fact that I have authority that you've never seen. But he didn't have to say that. He got to show it. And so today, after, after he had kind of gone on a brief circuit around Galilee, going to different places because he said, I came to teach, so let's go to other towns so that I can teach. He did that. They returned to Capernaum, like 1,500 people Probably mostly fishermen or tradesmen, just a simple working city. Uh, But he goes to the house there that he's staying, and everybody comes out. They want to hear what he's saying because this teaching, it's different. It's not different words necessarily, but it's a new authority. And they're like, this is crazy. And so while he's there, apparently people had heard, they've been following him. As a matter of fact, the guy that, uh, that he healed of leprosy just last week that we talked about, he said, don't go tell anybody, just go to the temple, you know, do what you have to do according to the law of Moses to show that you're clean, that way they're going to allow you back in the temple life, but don't go tell anybody because if you do, it's going to make things really hard for me. But the guy went and he told everybody. You know, he started walking. He's like, look, I'm clean. I got all my fingers. It's great. You know, that kind of thing. Leprosy was pretty crazy. But either way, you know, he started telling everybody, and after that, it became hard for Jesus. So he's in this house, and like the whole town, they show up again. And it says there's so much room, nobody could even get through the door. But there's these four guys, and they have a friend. And they have a friend who uh, apparently he can't walk, and he's living on a bed. And they want to get this man to Jesus. And so they go to the house, and the house is so crowded they can't possibly get a cot through there. Like, imagine, like, a camp cot, which is terribly uncomfortable. It's great when you're a kid, but then when you're an adult, you're like, man, these things are torture. But either way, like, that's probably something similar to what he's laying on, and they couldn't get to Jesus. And so what do they do? They, they climb up on the roof, and they tear a hole through the roof. Like, I know, we just read past it, and we're like, you know, no big deal. But I'm telling you, if I'm sitting in my living room... And I don't care who's there at my dinner table. If someone's tearing a hole through my roof, I'm going to be like, what in the world is going on? These squirrels have got to go, you know, whatever it may be. But these weren't squirrels. These were people. You know, according to this also appears in Matthew and in Luke uh, with with similar details but not quite as many words. But one of them says that they ripped through the roof. Now, these roofs would have been a little bit different than I. You know, Neil's a roofer, and he probably does, builds roofs different than they did back then. There would have been a stairwell that would go up to the roof to repair it because they'd frequently need to be repaired. They didn't have, you know, the standard roofing material that we have. But so they walked up the side of this building with a dude on a cot, and they ripped open the roof and lowered him down to Jesus. Now, this is where like this in the story is where I kind of go back to the tradition of the way that we were taught this passage. And over the past several weeks when I've been looking over this, I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. Like some of the ways in which I learned this passage don't add up to me. And I'm not saying that I know something that other people don't, but I'm just, I'm just thinking through because here's what happened. It said that they, in verse four, it says, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, tore through it. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that might not stick out to you because generally when we retell the story, we talk about there's a paralytic, they get to Jesus, they go to great lengths to get to Jesus. Jesus saw their faith and he said, get up and walk. But there's a lot that happened between get up and walk and and this place right here. Like the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that might not stick out odd to you, but the way that this story has been passed down, and we've talked about it so much, we generally go to the fact that a paralytic was able to get up and walk, and we forget that a sinner was forgiven. So there just a little turmoil in me over this story. Like I love this story, but too, even when I think about it, I think about the paralytic is able to walk. He's like, hey, get up, walk, go home. And he does. But before that, there was something else. Here's the thing. Like If we look at Scripture and we look at the rest of of what Jesus says and what he does, um, and this may not even really affect the application of this story, but to me, I think we need to hear it and I think we need to think about it. I don't think this man went there so that he could walk. I think this man went there because he had a bigger problem he couldn't fix, and it was sin. I think he went there because of that. And I think that he believed so wholeheartedly and his friends believed so wholeheartedly, they went to the only person that could fix his biggest problem. But through our American lens, we see his biggest problem is the fact that he couldn't walk. But he actually saw, as it relates to the fact that Jesus had been coming and teaching with an authority that they had never seen, that he was able to recognize in himself through the leading of God that he had a problem bigger than his broken legs. And it was the fact that he was covered in sin and he couldn't fix it. But Jesus, when he looked at the four plus this one, he looked at them and he was like, your faith is amazing. You believe that I can do this, so I will. Your sins are forgiven. And that might not speak to you, but it does to me. Because I, man, I think it's incredibly easy for us to follow Jesus for the worldly benefits. And what we've done is we've taken everything that Jesus has promised, the gospel, the spirit, the hope, and we've turned it into a religious system. And we're like, man, if I do this, I do this, I do this, I get this. And while there are blessings that Jesus promises, man, the first and foremost is this, that, that I have a problem that I cannot fix, and it has kept me from God, and it's called sin. And Jesus, and only Jesus, is the solution. And I think these four guys and this guy, they knew it, and they believed it so wholeheartedly that they were willing to go to incredible lengths just to get this guy who could not walk on his own in front of Jesus. So he looks at them and he says, your, your faith, when he saw their faith, their collective, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now obviously the people that were around him, because was, this was a mixed crowd, right? Uh, this was a crowd of people that genuinely wanted to hear Jesus. They were like, wow, you're teaching with some crazy authority right now. Never heard anybody teach like this. I want to hear what you're going to say next and how you're going to say it because I think that probably my eternity hinges on it for some reason. I don't know, but I think it does. But then there's other people standing around the edges of the room, probably stroking their voluptuous beards because that's what scribes and Pharisees did. If you don't believe me, just take my word for it. But either way, and so they're standing there and they hear a guy say something that only God should be able to say, talking about sins, talking about a heart issue, talking about fixing those with words. Remember, we talked about the authority that Jesus possessed. It wasn't just speaking about new things. but it was speaking like he owned it. And when he spoke, it became truth because it came from truth and it came out of his mouth. And so when he said, son, your sins are forgiven, they're like, oh, hold up, hold up. Only God says stuff like that. And they get upset. It's a pattern that we'll see repeated over and over in Scripture. The religious who had created this system, who lived by the system, who showed the system, who revealed the system in their action and wanted everybody to see the system, they're sitting there and they're like, man, this is not right. Right? Not right, but they said it inside. Like, this is one of the ironic parts of Scripture that I love so much because, um, man, somebody last night at the wedding that I was at told me that I look like Stone Cold Steve Austin, which is really weird. Um, that's really odd. But, like, the smackdown's about to come from Jesus, and that's the only reason I say that. Uh, like, they said something inwardly, not audibly, but Jesus answers them. Because right? at this point, they're like, he's blaspheming. Okay, he, He's pretending to be someone he's not. He's actually insulting God by using words that only he should be able to use. And they're thinking it inwardly, yet this person who they don't even think should utter these words answers an inner thought, which is amazing. And that they question within themselves. And, and so Jesus, like he perceived in his spirit, verse 8, it says immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? And at that point, I would love to have watched, like I would love to have watched, I bet they stopped stroking their beards, like their hands probably paused, and they're like, oh, what, what just happened? And they're kind of looking at each other, not turning their bodies, you know when you're really, really, you know, paranoid, you don't turn your whole body to look at somebody you're with, you just kind of turn your head like that, that's what they did, and they turned their head, they're like, oh, what, what just happened? Jesus answering an inner thought, he said, why do you question these things in your heart? He said, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, Take up your bed and walk, and we'll pause there. The reason that I think that this man went to Jesus to be forgiven and not to walk necessarily is because we see also this prescription that's laid out through the rest of the gospel. And Jesus had already said it, by the way. Like Jesus had already said it. Like his first words when he came to begin this ministry, he said, Look, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He said, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then other scripture attests to this, like Acts 3.19, uh, we see uh, Peter and John, like, addressing some incredibly religious people and hearkening back to the prophets of old. And he was like, don't you understand, in order to be made right with God and have forgiveness, you have to actually confess and repent of your sins. Like, you have to notice that you're sinful and, and pitch that before God. Say, I don't want these things anymore turn from them. Repentance, most of the time we talk about the physical expression to literally turn from, but it literally means, if we think about it, to change your mind or to change the way that you think about things. Like he said, look, if you want forgiveness of sins, you actually have to confess them and turn from them. See that you've done them. And then if we look at 1 John uh, through 9 it says, hey, if you confess your sins, if you tell God your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Like, I believe that this man in his heart knew that he was sinful, he was broken, he went to Jesus to be fixed for that, knowing that only he could, and that's what Jesus did first. That's what he did first. But man, the the Pharisees, they struggled with it. The scribes, they struggled with it. They're like, why? Who? What? Kind of a deal. So Jesus hears them questioning, and he's like, okay, all right. Let me, let me ask you a question. He's like, what, what would be easier, for me to say that your sins are forgiven to this guy or to say, get up and walk? And so here comes the, the smacketh, although Jesus was incredibly respectful about it. He said, but that you may know, verse 10, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He said, you're struggling to believe right now that I can forgive sins. You think that I'm a blasphemer. You don't understand who I am. I'm reading your inner thoughts, by the way, the questions that you uttered in your heart. I'm answering them. What do you think now? And then he said, but look, okay, you may struggle to believe that I can forgive sins. So maybe that's easy. That could just be lip service. What if I do this? What if I tell this man to get up and walk? I'm going to do that so that you can believe. I'm going to demonstrate physically that I can heal the broken so that you'll actually believe that I'm capable of forgiving the broken. He said, get up and walk. And the man did. Right there. And then, again, famous turn of phrase by Mark, immediately there's that word, like, at this moment, the man whose name we don't even know, he got up and he went home. And it said everybody in there, they were like, Never seen anything like this, pretty, pretty crazy, pretty amazing. A couple things in here. I, I, lo- I love this story. Like, I, I would have loved to have been like a fly on the wall to see pieces of the roof falling down and then all of a sudden a bed coming down. Like, that would have been great. My fear is, my fear is I would have been one of the Pharisees. Like, let me just be honest. My fear is I would have been one of those guys. Because I'm I'm incredibly attracted to the law. I'm incredibly attracted to earning my way to God's heart. Jesus said that's not it. It's not it. It's not even about legs that don't work, it's about something else. I think the first thing that we need to notice about not just this passage, but all of this that we get to do, not just Sundays, but this life that we are called into by the very Spirit of God, and this story reflects it. I think we need to understand that Jesus is the centerpiece. Jesus is the centerpiece. Like, we can make it about the do's and the do nots, we can make it about the cup and the bread. We can make it about the songs. We can make it about the place. We can make it about the time, the date, all of those things. But it's none of those things. Jesus is the centerpiece. Because like, if we look at this story, like, even just in the context of this story, if it wasn't for Jesus, there would have been nothing being taught. There would have been no crowd. There would have been no paralytic. There would have been no grumbling. There would have been no amazing teaching moment there would have been no sins forgiven, and there would have been no awe to fall over the entire crowd. Yeah, we go to the miracle, but the miracle wouldn't be possible without Jesus. Like, Jesus is the centerpiece. Like, for us, we, I mean, man, the bread and the juice wouldn't matter. The songs, they they wouldn't matter. Like, The religiosity that we find ourselves in, it wouldn't matter. The rules and the regulations, they wouldn't matter. The practices, they wouldn't matter because at the end of the day, they would fall just in Barnes & Noble right in that self-help section. And guess what? Nobody's self would really be being helped. Because Jesus is the centerpiece. Without Jesus, we, we can't be granted forgiveness. We can't be granted reconciliation. We can't be granted the newness that we see in 2 Corinthians. We can't be granted access to God. We can't be granted purpose. We can't be granted equipping. We can't be granted an eternity with God. Jesus is the centerpiece. He has to be. And the day that we veer our attention elsewhere, we've, we've stopped pursuing Jesus, and then we've created something else for ourselves that we think is going to get us there. And we're always going to come up woefully short woefully short who is this man who can forgive sins well it's jesus and he's the only one who can even as people who have been following jesus probably like yes for someone who doesn't yet know jesus this is incredibly necessary for you to hear and for god to allow you to understand that jesus is it but for those of us who have been following jesus for years and years and years we have to repeat it to ourselves every day because I think if Satan would love to do anything with us more than anything else, is just to draw our attention away from the fact that Jesus is it. And let us think that there's another way, that there's another chance, that there's another possibility. But instead, we need to remind ourselves every day, it's just Jesus. Without Jesus, there's no forgiveness, there's no purpose, there's no reconciliation, there's no knowing God and being known by God, there's no purpose and being used by God, there's no mission that we would be, man, even needed for, wanted for. It's just Jesus. I think here's the second thing in this passage, and man, this is the one that's going to get our goat. I don't know what that means, but it sounds really good. It's got a little bit of alliteration in there, and it's, you know, it's good. It's going to get our goat. And when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus actually saw their faith. He didn't hear them use words. He didn't read their t-shirt. He didn't read a nice stretchy bracelet. He didn't read a bumper sticker. No, he saw what they did as a result of what they believed. Is it getting your goat yet? He saw what they did as a result of what they believed. And what they did was nuts. And this is going to be a recurring theme in in Mark also. Like, people are going to go to great lengths because they believe that Jesus and only Jesus is capable of something. These guys, they carried a cot through a huge crowd. Like, I don't know. Have you even been to, like, a Clemson football game when it's actually packed out? Like, that's painful to watch this season. But, like, even with a book bag on, which they won't even allow you to to wear anymore unless it's clear, but trying to get through the breezeways when it's packed. Like, I remember a Thursday night game when I was on campus living there, and I had just gotten over Mono which is probably a terrible time to go to a football game. But I went, it was a Thursday night game, ESPN game. We were playing Florida State. I think we lost by a field goal, which was super painful. But I remember being in that breezeway and trying to get through the crowd, and I'm like, I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it. Number one, my liver's huge. Number two, lymphocytes are through the roof. I I don't really feel like standing, but I'm at a football game because I'm a fan. And I remember walking through that crowd thinking, I'm going to die. Imagine doing that with a cot, with a bed, and someone laying on it. Like, if you've got kids and they go boneless, like, don't go boneless on me, Sean. That's a psych reference. You should watch that show. It's really funny. Like, when your kids do that, that's pretty tough. But somebody that can't move, can't do anything, and you're trying to carry a bed with them on it, man, that's tough. Carrying it through a crowd, even tougher. Carrying it up on a roof, ripping the roof off, and lowering it down into a room where a man is teaching. That's nuts. But they did it because they believed. They did it because they believed. Man, James 2, which we've got, go ahead and throw that up there for me. Man, I love the book of James, probably our earliest written text in the New Testament and probably one of of our most practical too, written to the early church that were just figuring out what it meant to follow Jesus. James is telling the early church, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that they needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, it does not have works. If it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Man, James is being so just succinct, and he's saying, look, you can tell me all day long what you believe, that's great, but if you're not actually doing something as a result, I highly doubt that you believe it. There's the goat, and it just got us. He's saying, if you really believe what you say that you will believe, the actions of your life will reveal it before you even get to speak it. Now, we do have to speak it. Don't get me wrong. The gospel is linguistic. It's made up of words. We must share it. But Jesus looked at these men and they didn't say a word. But he knew they believed because of what they did. Man, the second thing we got to see is that faith does stuff. I know that's simple and, and, and I use the word stuff, but it's true. Like, faith does stuff. Like, in these guys' case, it was their faith and it was to, they believed so wholeheartedly that Jesus was the solution. They were willing to do whatever it took to get their friend there. Man, for us, like, in the context of our life, what does it look like for my faith to dictate the steps that I take, the role that I play at work, the role that I play in my home, the role that I play in my friends' lives, the the role that I play, period, like does my faith change the way that I live my life? According to James, he's saying if it does not, you might not have it. And this is not a word to make us doubt our salvation, and that's not what James' intention was either. But he was there to remind them that if we truly believe what we say, we believe then our life should match our words. As a matter of fact, the actions of our life should precede our words. You hear me? I need to hear me. The life, the actions of our life should precede our words. These guys walked into a room. As a matter of fact, they repelled into a room, and Jesus saw their faith without a single word. Does my life do that? Does our lives, do our lives, do they do that? Here's the, here's the third one. Man, I, I love this. Like these four dudes, these four guys, they believe so wholeheartedly that it affected someone else. Again, we've made my faith in Jesus, your faith in Jesus, our faith in Jesus so personal that we think it's just about our little box of belief in our little life amongst our four walls, our doors, our picket fences, our stuff. But as a matter of fact, if we have the type of faith that these guys are displaying that Jesus looked at and recognized that without a single word, it should be affecting those around us too. It should have an impact. On those around us, It should have an impact on those people we love, those people we serve, those people that maybe, maybe even those people, hopefully, that you wrote down on these cards. Those three names that we talk, we're talking about a lot, and you're like, man, you keep talking about it. I'm going to keep talking about it. These three people that we wrote down on these cards, they need Jesus. And we want to pray for them repeatedly, often, all the time, until they come to know Jesus. My faith should affect them. Your faith should affect them. It's not that your faith is going to save them. God's going to save them. But you look at these four guys. They were willing to do anything they could to get their friend to Jesus. And I know it sounds very Sunday school. It sounds very trite. But is my faith taking people to Jesus? Is it? Because if it's not, (laughs) maybe I don't have it. Or maybe it needs to grow. It needs a shot in the arm. It needs a kick in the pants. It needs a goat to get it. I don't care something's off. If we say we believe, it should not only be affecting what we do, but it should be affecting those around us. And we should be doing whatever we could to get those around us who are far from Jesus but close to us, do whatever we can to get them to Jesus. Maybe it is climbing up on a roof, lowering them down, tearing a roof off. Probably not. But it could be a lot of other things. You know, and I'll even give you an easy route. Easy route. And and I'll be honest, i fought saying this for a long time. Bring them to worship. Like it's not a substitute for sharing the gospel with someone. It's not a substitute for personal evangelism. It's not. But it's a great way to start a conversation because they're going to hear something that one of us is going to say. They're going to be like, I don't know about that. And you say, well, let me me talk with you a little bit about that. Can I I talk with you a little bit? If they trusted you enough to accept an invitation, they're probably going to trust you enough to let you speak into their life. Bring them here. Take them to a community group. They're going to hear us go over everything that we say in here and how that works, how that's applied. Yeah, it's a great entryway. It's a great way to do it. It's not a substitute for you sharing the gospel with your friends, your family, your loved ones. It's not, but it's a great way to start the conversation. Maybe, man, again, the things that we talk about all the time, maybe it's just your story, your story. Like, what has God done in your life? What was your life like before Jesus? How did he grab your attention? How did you respond? What's your life been like since? Have you shared that with those people who are far from Jesus but close to you? it's a conversation. Maybe sometimes we have unlimited time. You can just share part one this week, next week part two, over the next three weeks part three, whatever. If I believe what I say that I believe, it should be affecting the steps that I take, but it should be affecting those people around me. Faith does stuff and it should impact those around me. And again, this is not to bring about guilt. This is not to bring about like, you know, deep conviction. Now, if the Spirit's doing that in your life, that's His job, not mine. But, This is just to remind us that, man, this thing that God has given us through Jesus, it has incredible weight, but that weight is attached to responsibility. It does things. This faith that comes through hearing, that's uttered through our mouths, that we're equipped to speak through the very Spirit that lives in us, and it brings about life change, eternity change. It gives hope. But it has to be heard. Now, these guys, they believed so wholeheartedly. They were willing to do whatever it took. We're going to see a woman in like three chapters who did even crazier stuff, which I love. But, man, in our life, what does that look like? I can't tell you that. I wish I could. I wish I could give you a map and say this is what it's going to look like. It's going to vary from relationship to relationship, from life stance to life stance, where you are, who's around you. But the bottom line is that my faith should make my life look different, and my faith should be contagious to a degree. God should be using the way that I live my life to draw people to himself and change their entire entire eternity. Like the people around us. Man, and the people around us, they may not be paralyzed and trapped on a bed, but according to Ephesians, if they do not know the Lord Jesus as their savior, they're completely dead dead in their trespasses, just like we once were if you follow Jesus now. You were dead too. And the power of life and death rests in the gospel. But it must be heard. What are the opportunities? What are the lengths? What must we do to actually do what we say we believe? What does that look like? I love that I love that Jesus made him walk. Didn't have to. That's <laughs> what he does. I'll fix your big problem, but I want to restore you too. Now, yeah, he did it so people could see. And so, because he even told the scribes, he's like, oh, so you can believe that I can actually forgive sins. Let me get this guy up and let him walk too. I think he would have done it if they weren't there. He came to teach. He came to restore. And very often, he did it one person at a time. One mat at a time. One withered hand at a time. One bleeding woman at a time. He said, yeah, I want to forgive you. But I want to fix you. Man, I love my Jesus. Love him. If we can, let's love him to the point that it changes others. Let's do that. Let's love Jesus enough to where it is evident, obvious, desirable, and odd all at the same time. Let's do that. And let's see what happens. God, we love you. Thank you for the things that only you can do. The things that we can see you do, and when we see them, when we hear about them, when we perceive them, God, it moves us to worship. It moves us to share. It moves us to respond. It moves us to want to be more and more like you for your sake, your kingdom, and our good. God, thank you for Jesus is capable, and he's worthy, and he's all those things. God, thank you that he does forgive sins. If we just see them, confess them, and believe that he can, and that only he can. And God, thank you that you don't want to leave us as we are, but you also want to equip us to go and to be free from sin and to carry your name wherever we go. And sometimes that means giving us new legs. Sometimes it means just giving us a new story. But every time it means giving us a new heart. God, thank you that according to your word, that if we are in you, we are a new creation. The old is gone. Look, the new has come. Thank you, God, for making us new through Jesus. I pray we get to witness that in other people as a result of the things you've done in us and by the way that we believe in you and love your son. Thank you for your word. It's in his name we pray.